as we're suffering for the Lord. Um, they say that when you're starting a church and you want to grow a church, that you shouldn't talk about politics, or sex, or money. And we're not partisan, but we often talk about politics. Jamel just talked about money, and now this is the talk on adultery. hey yo. We've been waiting for this one. I think Jamel aligned the calendar and schedule so that it would come to me. And if you are a guest here, uh, welcome. This is not every week. Here's the truth. We don't want to avoid what Scripture talks about. We're not going to be afraid of what Scripture says. And, and so we are in series on the Ten Commandments. And um, so, yeah, I just want to give you warning, and I want to let our hearts be ready uh, we're, we're not going to get into any details or nothing, but we're going to talk, what is, what is Scripture saying here, and what is this commandment about? And a lot of us have a lot of pain and baggage around the idea of sex and intimacy and adultery and all of this, and so we're going to be honest. And uh, as we started out, I'm going to switch mics, and I want to pray, and I want to ask that, that you pray with me and that we do this as a, a way of just though this is vulnerable, as a way of, of just opening up our heart to what God has to say, okay? So let's do this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're good. We thank you that you mean well for your children. We thank you that you are always inviting us closer to you, and um, this morning, as we talk about adultery and we talk about sex, we talk about these areas that we, sadly, as a church, don't talk about too often in a, in a protected space, but mostly just in a blaming way. We pray that you, would, that you would hold us dear, and that we would sense your spirit moving, and that we would see that, uh, that there's room for us at your table, whether that mean as we are or repenting from where we are or whatever this looks like, that, that there's space for us. So thanks. Guide my words and, and open our ears to hear only from you. In your name, amen. amen. So this Ten Commandments, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page again. The Ten Commandments were given uh, to give clear instruction for life in freedom. They're given to a people who knew really well for generations how to live oppressed, how to live with outside forces telling them exactly what to do every moment of every day. And the Ten Commandments are given as a guide to freedom. They're to free us from the bondage to others, free us from the bondage to sin, free us from the bondage to the culture of death. And a few months ago when we were... Uh, Back going over like the basics, if you remember in the winter, we went over the basics. We talked about uh, the origin story of death and decay in Genesis 3. Some of you might remember that. We talked about how we were born in Genesis 1. We are image bearers. Our origin is there in Genesis 1. But then in Genesis 3, death and decay have their origin. And death and decay set culture. This week, if you go read Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, you're going to see the destruction that follows this death and decay. And by today, death and decay have really attacked relationships. They've really attacked intimacy. 
And God is establishing this culture we see in Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20. We see that he's establishing this culture of freedom and love. And in that, God says this. uh, Deuteronomy 5, verse 18, neither shall you commit adultery. Five words. It's kind of a run-on paragraph here. We get a few short tweets in a row that are different commandments. We see that you, you shall not murder, neither shall you commit adultery, neither shall you steal. Like this, this little list that really matters. In fact, I would encourage you that this one and the next two that follow, I think, are, I think we have a hard time with all these commandments, understanding what God intended. But particularly next week when Pastor Jamel speaks, uh, encourage you to come back because it means something much different than what we first read. And I would say this commandment as well. In Hebrew, this means what it says. Neither shall you commit adultery. There's not some twist in here that means like you can have Twizzlers with every meal. That's not what it means in Hebrews. It means neither shall you commit adultery. But for us in our culture, this doesn't feel like freedom and it doesn't feel like love. A God who says that you shall not commit adultery, we don't think of as a loving God. We see that as a restriction. We see that as a God who doesn't understand, who doesn't know how we're wired and, and care for who we are. And yet it's, that's exactly who God is. He does know how we're wired. He wired us. And he does care. That's why we have these commandments. We, we often believe that we need more and new in all areas of life, but especially in our relationships. If you're in a committed relationship, if you're in a marriage, oftentimes the, the temptation or the thought is that, that I signed up for a lesser life. I committed here, but I did something safe. And this culture lies to you and says that there is something out there that is better that you're missing up on. That you grabbed a hold of security, but you missed on life. This culture gives us a lie that to be consistently loved is boring. And to have a place where you are consistently loved at your worst, at your best, that that is, that is a boring life. And this culture tells us that life is just outside the reach of a faithful relationship. And that just outside of our reach, if we can get there, that will bring satisfaction and freedom. So we've been using the words of Dr. James Bruckner throughout this series where, where he kind of helps us understand the commandments. And it, his words say that the seventh commandment protects against bondage to the false idea that uncommitted sexual relationships will bring you satisfaction and freedom. What he's saying is that this idea that, that sex without commitment is, is more exotic and more, that's where life is, all of these kind of things. He's saying that that is a false idea. There may be for a few moments we can get caught up in that, but that leaves a bondage and a baggage on us that God did not intend for us. And we just get caught up thinking that it's that, it's that other relationship that's slightly more new or slightly less committed, where we know less about the person. Maybe that's what the trick is. And 
and it's just always just beyond our reach. And Dr. Bruckner says that this, this is a bondage that we're to be free from. Now, the cultures at the time that this was written believed that life, that enjoyment, that fulfillment was, was in uncommitted relationships. They would have a committed relationship, and then they would have uncommitted relationships as well. And they believe that's where the joy lied, and I would say today we're really not that different. Now, interestingly, cultures at the time that this was written believed in fickle, changing gods. They believed that God liked you one day and didn't like you the next, that you were good enough one day and that you were not good enough the next, that you were worth everything one day and then the next day you were nothing but a slave to the God, and and sexually they acted out the same. They treated one another in that same way. And this week as I was thinking about us in our culture and us in this community, Some of the healing of the image of God that we need comes from, like, our childhood. It seems like sometimes it's cliche that that we have a wound from our fathers, but a lot of us have a wound from our fathers or from our mothers. We have a wound from a, a, a lack of something that we needed growing up. And some of the healing that we need is from circumstances as we grew up or circumstances right now where we need to understand that God is is provider, but we just don't know how to believe that because circumstances feel to say different. So there's healing on the image of God, on circumstances, on how we grew up. There's also healing that needs to come because of how we've lived out our sexuality. If we have consistently lived with uncommitted relationships, if we've lived a life marked by adultery, then it's really hard to believe that God is faithful and that he's called us to be faithful because we don't know faithfulness with other people. We don't know the faithfulness of a partner. In fact, we are often repulsed by the faithfulness of another partner. When we live in that space, we don't want someone to become too too clingy on us because it's not about intimacy, it's not about closeness, it's about sex. And we get confused in this bondage weighs on us, but as we try to live with a clearer and clearer understanding of who God is, and as he heals this image of God within us, we realize that he is faithful and has wired us to be faithful as well. And so this commandment is to guard our our faithfulness. This commandment is about you and I being faithful as our God is faithful. This commandment is about, hey, our society is to teach our children by model that God is faithful and we can be too. But like everything else, we've got an incredible way of of corrupting things, right? And we have a tendency to hurt people. And I would say that this commandment and other verses along the way have just been used as weapons against people instead of mirrors to look within us as a culture and as us as individuals. And so I know a while ago we taught on this text, but I want to bring us back to it again. If you'll open up to John 8, 111. If I open up, I, I know that I'm talking about your phone usually, but, but go ahead and open up there. The words will be on the screen as well. This is in the NRSV. 
I'm going to read the whole section and then comment on a couple things, okay? Starting in verse 2, actually, it says, Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they may, uh, might have some charge to bring against Jesus. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. To me, this is a really beautiful passage. This is grace upon grace upon grace that's extended to you and me. But this is also how God sees the law, how God uses the law. And I think that's important for us to see. So there's this law of Moses. What is meant by that? Definitely the Ten Commandments are meant. But then there's like 630-some laws. And so when they're saying the law of Moses, they're talking about that 630-some law. Laws and, and truthfully, like other laws and other cultures, there was a law in the law of Moses that death was, was caught. Like, if you were caught in adultery, you were to be killed. Now, interestingly, most cultures had this law at the time. Uh, most cultures said that the woman is to be killed. And in Judaism, the man and the woman, if you're caught in adultery, then you're to be killed. And this is harsh and I don't know half what to do with it. I mean, that's just the truth. It's like, this seems like, wow, why, why, why is God so harsh? And part of this is, at the time of the Old Testament, oftentimes uh, uncommitted sexual acts, particularly are, are religious. There are temple prostitutes. There are, there are ways of drawing you away from God. But let's just be honest. If you're in uncommitted relationships and you're having sex, that, that can sometimes draw you away from God no matter who the person is. But this, this stoning seems real harsh. To me, I'm like, wow, that, that seems like that's, that's a pretty big deal. Like, you should have a sit down. You should have an honest conversation. But, but that's God's law. And so they bring the law. They bring what is the law of Moses to Jesus. We're not going to pretend it's not the law, right? We're going to be honest in here. So they bring the law of Moses to Jesus. They say, what are we supposed to do with this? And I think it's important for us to see that Jesus does say, no, the result of adultery is no, like, he does change the law here. No, we don't kill somebody for that. We don't kill somebody physically, but we also don't kill somebody for that. We don't run their name through the mud. We don't, we don't alienate. We don't, we don't kill somebody for this. And he brings up the real purpose of the law. The law is to point us as often explained, to see our, our lowercase as sin is reflected in our capital sin, like the, the stuff that gets between us and God, the law exposes we desperately need a God. 
And so the law of Moses here shows that desperately we need a God. But this is interesting that these guys apparently catch her in the act, which is a weird place to be, looking through the window or whatever's going on there. Like that, that seems like that's pretty wrong. And wherever the guy is, we don't know where the guy is. He's like, he's back home resting or something, but they bring her out. And so this is like, this is pretty messed up. And this woman is not a woman. She is really like a prop. She's a trap. She's being used here. And sadly, adultery often leads people to a position where they feel used. They feel like a prop. And oftentimes they feel that because that's the way the other person uses them. They feel that because that is reality from the other person. That is not reality in their image and in their identity, but that is reality of that relationship. I am not a human. I am not an image bearer. I am just here for your use. And that's it. And this woman, is that the previous evening? And then they hold her in some awkward spot all night so that the next morning when, when Jesus shows up, they pull her out and they say, hey, yesterday we caught her in the act. And they don't see any weirdness in that. And then they say to Jesus, uh, should we kill her? The man's not there. She's there. Should we kill her? Jesus writes on the ground and says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And we know that there's one person there without sin. We know that Jesus is without sin. And so if anybody has the right to bring physical death to anybody because of the way that they have lived out their sexuality, it's, it's Jesus. And he just starts doodling in the sand. It says that the older people left first because... I don't know, their knee hurts, or they're just well aware that they can't run past this, and the younger people leave last because, well, when we're young, we kind of think we are sinless. And everybody leaves. And it's just this woman and Jesus, and Jesus stands up, and he looks her in the eye, and he says, woman, but he doesn't say it in this derogatory way that we often say it. He says, woman, who condemns you? What's that about? She had come as a prop, and he's restoring her humanity. Who's saying that you are no longer a woman? Who's saying that you are not an image bearer? Who's the one who holds this charge above your identity? Because let's be honest, once, once the act of adultery is over, a lot of us live in a spot where we are sure that that act is our identity. that we are just that pawn or that prop. That's why he says, who condemns you? He says, no, no one, sir. And then Jesus, I believe, looks in her with, I believe he, he must have had some real compassionate eyes and said, then neither do I. But it's interesting that he doesn't say, neither do I, now go ahead and do what you'd like. He, he says, no, go sin no more. And he doesn't say, don't commit an act of adultery anymore. He says, go sin no more. 
And I really think if Jesus looks you in the eye and you see the compassion of Christ towards you and you see that he's not condemning you, I think the result is why would you want to live smaller? Because really that's what sin is, right? Sin is us thinking like God doesn't have this, the life he has for me is not enough, so I need to reach somewhere else to get what I need. And I think he's saying, hey, young woman, image bearer, you don't have to be this. I know you know how to be a prop. I know you know how to be used. I know you know how to be gratified in a quick moment and that you probably even have bought some of these lies that this is who you are, but I don't condemn you. And nobody else has the right to condemn you. No other voice has the right to condemn you. And then because of that, you don't have to go validate their voices. They may say that for the rest of your day, you are just known as the adulterous woman. But to Jesus, she is the non-condemned woman. The little little headline here, thankfully in this version, isn't even the adulterous woman. I remember in the one that I grew up, that was her title which would be a horrible way to get to heaven, right? But here, she's just, she's the woman who was caught in adultery. But she's a woman. And the first time we see women in Scripture is an image bearer, filled with awe and wonder, made powerfully to act as as the Holy Spirit does, as a helper, the one who fulfills everything that happened. And so here's why I bring up this this passage. This commandment, the seventh commandment, has been used as power in the hands of the accusers. It has been. And sadly, the, the church has taken the lead in this one. People like myself have taken a microphone and, and offered up guilt and shame and condemnation to lots and lots of people. We've acted like God's place that we, he gave us is just outside of people's bedroom windows, just like the creepy guys in this verse. That's not where Jesus would have us. This is not about being, uh, having power in the hands of the accusers. This verse, this commandment is meant to be security in the hearts of the vulnerable. That's what this is. It is meant to be, hey, for your kids, be faithful to one another. Your kids can grow up in a space that they, they, chaos of life all over the place and even storms within your home, but they know that they know that they know that your home is your home, that you're there. It was interesting. We were up in, in Michigan, and, and Nikki and Anna and Durant came along. We had this week of, of fun, but, but we're in a space that Anna doesn't know. So right away, she's like real nervous and real clingy. By the end, she's ready to just jump into the lake if you don't look. But at first, she's real clingy. And Nikki said, anytime I'd walk away, she'd get real nervous that I was gone. And I think we do that in spaces we get into a new season of life, and even in a marriage, we feel like, are you going to be there until we know the faithfulness of our partner? And then like, okay, I can trust you. And then the idea of a faithful God is less foreign. It's less foreign. 
This verse is about the security that's to be in the hearts of the vulnerable. This verse has been used to punish and shame and condemn, but it's meant to protect. That's what the verse is about. This is not a verse that you should read and then feel heaps of guilt over past acts or things like that. No, God has grace to forgive. You can repent and move past any of that. It is not meant for a way of looking back and feeling guilt and shame. It is a way to look forward and feel protected. That's what it is meant to be. And so if there's past things that we need to repent of, let's repent of it. If there's past things that we would do differently if we could, then let's talk about it. Let's ask God to forgive, and then let's trust that he does what he does so well. But this is about going forward, and as we go forward as a community, we're we're to feel the security. You see, this verse has been used to legislate others. That's not the intent. I know in our country we like to put the Ten Commandments up in courtrooms. That makes no sense to me. Makes no sense that we would put it up in a courtroom. It should be in like, uh, I don't really mean this, but like in like cafeterias. Like this is the kind of stuff that makes it safe for us to eat together, to be together. It doesn't belong in a place where we just legislate one another and we punish one another. That's not the point of the commandment. It's not to legislate others. It's meant for the security of us. That we have places where we can say, hey, as, as your brother, I'm in this with you. And then where we can look at our spouse and say, and I'm, I'm in this with you. And this vow is, is like well, the vow made to God. And so much of it is just covered with guilt. That's not what it is. It's meant to provide stability for our entire family. That we don't know the storms that are coming. We know that we will live through them together. Now here's the other way that it's been used that is is unfair. It's been used to it's been used as a weapon to keep people in abusive spaces. And that's not the point either. If you're in abusive space, then that's not a marriage. So you don't have to stay there. If you're in abusive space, that means that you you need help. And it's not weak to ask for help. And and there are people in in this room who can help you. You can talk to me if you feel comfortable and I'll connect you with some some people in abusive Marriage is not in a marriage, it's just abusive. And a marriage is a space to be loved. And you get into tough stretches in a marriage, but that is not synonymous with abuse. A tough stretch is not a place where we are beat down verbally or physically or sexually. And if you are there, then don't hear this conversation on on faithfulness as a reason to stay in a spot where you're constantly belittled and you're beaten and you're taken from. That's not the point. You see, this is really 
about us staying together and us being faithful because as like the philosopher Phoebe Buffay says, you're, she's your lobster. She's the one you run next. He's your lobster. That's the one that you've committed to. And adultery at its core is an example of our faithlessness. It's an example of the place where, where we set aside our faithfulness to, to grab a hold of something that's outside of our reach. And yet, you and I, we are people made in the image of a faithful God, invited to live faithfully. That's what this commandment is about. Is that a little less jarring? It's a little more robust, I hope. Here's the reality. When we live faithfully, our culture thinks that's weird. Our culture thinks there's something wrong with us. Our culture thinks we're boring. Our culture lies. We're to live faithfully because our God is faithful. And the people who's are not in a marriage who are single or divorced or widowed or something like that, we need to creatively and wholeheartedly find ways to invite them into community because this also has been used to prop up this kind of weird, limited understanding of the idol of family. Not everybody lives in that space. And so we need to invite people into relationships who are not a part of our, our tiny, little, limited family. We need to invite people into intimacy outside of sex. We're to live close to one another. Guys, we need to be close friends with one another and not feel weird about that. Women, you need to have close friends with one another and not feel weird about that. We can have this is my opinion. We can have relationships with anybody in the community and have it not be sexual as long as it's not sexual. And the Holy Spirit is really good at convicting if we're listening. And so all of these rules and silliness that we put up is really silly. This verse is about like, hey, you are my people. Be faithful because I'm faithful. So the generations behind you can, when they hear that I'm a faithful God, they're not like, you've got to be kidding. But they're like, of course you are. I've seen it in my community. Now, in here, we talked about some stuff that probably leads some of us to be aware or reminded of brokenness or hurt or past events or whatever. If that's you, there's, there's no shame in here. If we haven't yet repented, let's repent. If we're currently in a situation, let's repent. And then let's look at how we move forward in God's faithfulness. And so I want to pray over all of us because reality is I have yet to meet someone who is not a little bit sexually shady and hasn't like, I've, I have yet meet, to meet somebody who just has a pure understanding of our sexual identity and our sexual practice. I just don't, I don't know any of us. Our, our culture just gives baggage to all of us on this. And so I just want to pray for the Holy Spirit to heal us on that 
And then heal us on our understanding of his faithfulness and the way that we can live into that faithfulness as well. If you want to have further conversations, if you want someone to pray for you, um, we're going to have a, Jamel, let's have you go in the back and Kat in the back and go into the back because this conversation might need a little more of a conversation. And frankly, it's just hard to hear up by these speakers. And so there's a room we can even go into or whatever it looks like. But let me pray over all of us on this area, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are good. And I know that in a lot of ways, our understanding of adultery and sexuality and intimacy and faithfulness, all of that gets blurred and ugly and confusing. And God, we ask that you would clear our eyes to see you clearly. Let's see what you have. I know that some of us in our sexual practice are just really broken. And our identity, acts and thoughts, images that we've watched just blur way too many things. We ask that you would be the healer here. You say in Matthew, quoting Isaiah, you say that your desire is to heal our eyes. And so we ask that you would heal our eyes for the things that we've seen that have perverted our understanding of image bearers. You say that your desire is to heal our ears. So in the way that we've heard things that mess with our identity or mess with our understanding of somebody else and starts to objectify, make somebody a a prop, that you would heal that. But then you also say that if we would turn to you, you would heal us. And so for some of us, I think there's even ways that we don't know how to explain how we want healing or how we need healing, but I believe that healing is there. And so we just say, Lord, we turn to you. We may not even have a healthy example of what, of, of someone who is faithful and someone who is in line with you on this, and yet we turn to you and ask that maybe you rise us up as your examples. God, remind us that you are a faithful God. For anyone who doesn't know you as faithful today, I pray that you would spur their hearts to accept you as Lord, to say that that's the kind of God that I've looked for. let this room be covered with your grace and your forgiveness, your healing and your presence. In your name, amen.